0: Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. I am now ready to go on to a page that's dedicated to the cover story. Mm, yes. So when you look at the image that is on the cover of the big black book, um, it is an interesting image. And there's a... Um, the whole story is explained. But uh, I'm going to read just the very first sentence, and that is the great oval of the design represents the egg of life. So it's an intentional egg shape. It goes on into a story uh, from uh, Australian Aboriginal peoples, although it also says that it's also American Aboriginal peoples that have the same story. And it tells the story of a of a snake that is a uh, a creator and has a rainbow color to it. Um, I don't know if you, do you have anything to say about the cover image.
1: You know, I I, I think that it would be interesting to do a little research on that statement about um, Aboriginal peoples from. North America, because, you know, there, of course, were many, many different people, and there still are, of course, there's still you know, many of those people groups are still here, and they all have different versions of their creation stories, so it'd be very interesting to know which one he's referencing there, I don't know off the top of my head, um, which one, but it would not be accurate to say that all of them had this story, um, and, uh, so it'd be really interesting to know, when he says American, of course, they could also refer to Central and South American Aboriginal people. So it'd be very interesting to do the research and figure out, um, exactly who he was referring to with that statement.
0: You know, I kind of feel like this whole black book, going back to that shipping container full of books, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that really Bill would re- want to write a 100 volume set. Mm-hmm. That, and this is, this book is enormous this is this book is not only thick, but it is very tall and wide, and the print is like kind of small <laughs> yes and and the pages you can kind of see through them a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's not exactly the thickest paper um, so I mean how many pages is this it says I was, to,
1: I was looking uh, just for people who don't have a copy on on I'm looking here in the last page it's numbered as page five hundred and seventy six okay. So you know we're, we're we're close to 600 pages in this book,
0: and it's and and they every all the words are in two columns because yes you, you have to do it that way with a book that's this broad. And so I want to say that for something like that, I kind of feel like Bill probably has at least a whole book to say that he covered in one page, mm-hmm. and so he had to condense it. To get it to fit there And yes. so I kind of feel like a lot of what we're going to read There's going to be A lot of subtext Between the lines mm-hmm. And um, that's That's not printed here Because there just wasn't room And I know I can yes. kind of Feel the subtext mm-hmm. as I'm going along Like mm-hmm. oh, I can imagine there's a huge story Behind that sentence Oh yeah I I know
1: that, well, at the moment, um, I am in the middle of writing a book. I think you saw a part of it called Observation for Design. Mm. And um, I've made it even harder on myself because so I basically says every day I want people to get out and actually practice design. But I'm going to give them just a little bit of reading every day to kind of get their, their, their brain started on what they're going to observe. And so I can take you systematically through learning to observe. You know complex systems, and so it 's like yep i 've got these two pages for today to give you your thought, and so it 's been like trying to like take a broad subject and just distill just it down and distill it down and boy it 's slow writing by the way, because you 've got to really think about what is the essence of this thing right how do i there's uh, I forget which president it was who said, yeah, if, if you want me to explain something to you and um, I have to get across this this really important point. If I have two hours, I can start immediately. You he know. said, no, excuse me. He said, if I have 10 minutes to explain it, it will take me two weeks to prepare. He said, <laughs> if you give me half an hour to explain it, I can be ready in two days. If you give me two hours to explain it, I can start immediately. <laughs> I think right. that's the point. Like yeah, that. it's like when you, when you figure out how to distill and distill and distill down, I feel like you, you, when you read this, when you read through this book, it, for po- folks who are listening who've never read through the book, Bill's writing is such that oftentimes you'll read a couple pages and have to kind of like stop and think about it for a little bit. It's very rich. It's very dense in places. And I think that's what he's done. He has, in order to get it down to 600 pages, he has, you know, distilled and distilled down and you have to really just think about what he's saying and he's put a lot. There's a lot of resonance behind a lot of the sentences we'll read.
0: I I know, as you were saying that I thought so much like Blaise Pascal was famous for having said something about, I'm sorry my letter is so long, I didn't have the time to make it shorter. Yes. And um and then also um I when I wrote my book, then a lot of the thought went into like, when, cause when I first learned the C programming language, I went with a book called The C Programming Language, written by the inventors, Kernigan and Ritchie. The K&R, yes. Yes, the K&R book. And, but at the same time, when I grabbed that book, I grabbed seven other books. Like, today, I need to learn C, and I'm gonna read all these books. And so I did. I read all those books. And what I walked away with was, <clears throat> Um, a book that was like enormous, fat book that mm-hmm. sold for twenty dollars um, had maybe a quarter of the information that was in the K and R book, which is a tiny book. That's right. And yeah. and it's like really the thing to do is just read the K and R book. You don't need all those That's other. That's right. There's a
1: reason that in the industry, if you just say, "Yeah, get me a, grab me a copy of the K and R," everybody knows what you're talking
0: about. Right. Because they did the work. And it's, it's $45 for that book. And it's a tiny book.
1: It is, but they did the work. They distilled it down. They made it crystal clear. Yes. And it's boom. And that's, you know, and today I think, um, that's critical. We have so much data and so much stuff that the value add today is in the distillation right, to really distill it down, to do the hard work of thinking your way through it, and to present it in a way that is clear and concise and distills it down to the core so you can get it. And, um, you know, I think part of the the success is that Mollison, even though he's tackling basically this infinite subject, he spent some time, obviously, in writing to try to do some of that distillation for us.
0: Chapter 1, page 1, (laughs) section (laughs) 1.1, permaculture design philosophy. So I I marked off a paragraph that's like the fourth paragraph. Hmm. What we have done, we can undo. There is no longer time to waste, nor any need to accumulate more evidence of disasters. The time for action is here. I deeply believe that people are the only critical resource needed by people. We ourselves, if we organize our talents, are sufficient to each other. What is more, we will either survive together or none of us will survive. To fight between ourselves is as stupid and wasteful as it is to fight during times of natural disasters when everyone's cooperation is vital. Hmm. All right. <clears throat> I mean, a little bit of, of political stuff. Um, well, you know, I don't see that as political. Oh, it's not totally political, no. But yeah, I, I, I just don't. I don't process it that it, way. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <clears throat> I, I think, because uh, to me, when I think of human beings, mm-hmm. I kind of think like uh, if you're going to get, if you're going to talk about everybody and we're all going to cooperate, mm-hmm. now it's political. Whereas, if I'm gonna say like, okay, I'm gonna go do my thing over here to try and make things better, that's apolitical.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I guess I kinda look at it a little bit differently. I mean, when we get into how we are going to go about doing that, and the practical tactics of, you know, how the power is set up, then that becomes political. But basically to me this is just like fundamental um um a fundamental statement about the dynamics of living systems. You know? Um and yes, it can become political pretty quickly when uh, we start talking about, you know, okay, well when we cooperate versus, you know, power structures <clears throat> in which there's top down uh control structures that are imposed on people and so forth. Um, but to me what this really what this really brings to mind <clears throat> but before we even get into the political side is what happens over and over again when I run into young people who are growing up in the world as it is right now. Um they there there's a certain percentage of them that have this just intuitive understanding that what we're doing is very destructive, and they don't know what to do about it. So there is, in their mind, they have two possibilities that they have been, mm, that they have uh, sort of know is there. And one possibility is just we keep on doing business as usual. We keep on destroying, you know, uh, the the ecosystems around us to the point where we do. We sort of like take ourselves out. Um And, you know, there's nothing political in that statement. It's just me looking at it as a, as a you know, somebody who studied ecology and systems engineering and seeing that the disruption of the systems that are supporting us and saying, well, at some point in time, it's just going to happen that the systems can't support human population anymore. There it is, you know. Then the other side that they've been exposed to is um, what I would call sort of maybe the radical environmental fringe, which basically says people – are the problem and the best thing that you could do as a person is pretty much just die and go away right because humans are inherently destructive to the environment and therefore you know and we're not part of nature we are destructive to nature and as a result we should just all die because nature is good and we are bad
0: you know it's funny that you say this thing right Mm -hmm. now because as I was reading this, I was thinking, like, you know, I want to start the day off with that. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I forgot to. I didn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, <clears throat> but it was like, I think it was about 10 years ago, I went into Missoula, and I had my handy little camera, and there was an environmental event going on. And I thought it would make a fun video to go to different people that were like, you know, instructors and you know in charge of this thing or that thing or whatever and and i'd go to them and i'd say what's the best thing a person can do for the environment and i thought that somebody would say like you know grow a garden and another person would be like you know uh use solar energy or or learn ways of conservation or you know everybody would have their like their little tip and i thought that would make kind of a fun (laughs) little video and then 80% of the, uh, the answers that I got were, uh, in the, in the realm of die, don't have children, mm-hmm. dig a grave, put yourself in it, and then die, think, things of this nature. They were all morbid as hell.
1: Yeah, or be really angry and, and like, yeah, in, and, and, and just and hold that anger and express that anger that somebody else isn't doing something.
0: I kind of feel like it's not that hard to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Like you look at, you can look at your own carbon footprint or petroleum footprint or toxic footprint and and say I'm I'm actually making things better more than I have a footprint. And, and it's like, can we not pursue that? Could these people, they couldn't think of a way to pursue that. And yet, and yet, each and every one of them is actively at that event to share information about the environment. Mm -hmm. They're there to teach others about environmentalism. And, and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking like, and that's the best you got is to die.
1: And I would say, to the degree that that's what you're teaching, that you are reinforcing the false narrative that human beings are somehow separate from nature, and that therefore you are being destructive to nature by propagating that. In other words, <clears throat> that approach to environmentalism is bankrupt to, to me. Um, because what happens is, you know, I sit, I sit down, I hear these these kids, and they're trapped in this whole polarity. Right? It's a false polarity. Either we just keep on you know doing what we're doing or we all die, and I sit down and go, but you know the whole thing is that for we know that human beings we have evidence and you know um, examples of human beings being keystone species in the environment and neither of those is correct what actually I would have to say from looking at it from like a system's perspective, is that, yes, we have spent a long time destroying ecosystems. At this point, if we just all died, it would take a good while for those ecosystems to truly recover. Um, because we've done, a lot, we've done a lot of damage. However, the, the the way to look at it is to say that humans are a keystone species in the environment. And according to how they act, they can either be profoundly destructive or profoundly regenerative. And what are we going to choose? Because we are a part of nature. If we choose to be destructive, then we can destroy the place. We, we can, and we're on our way. On the other hand, if we choose to be regenerative, we can regenerate what has been destroyed to a large extent. And we can create systems that are deeply regenerative, and we can hand off to our children and grandchildren an earth that is really, truly amazing. Um, it will take a couple hundred years to get rid of some of the toxins we've created, but it would only take a couple of decades to drastically. And I mean, drastically regenerate huge landscapes, given the number of people that there are and the amount of energy we put into the environment. If we were to begin to make the shift, um, we could regenerate the earth's ecosystems to a large extent within a couple of decades. It's completely doable. We know how to do it. And when I, Tell them that and say, I'm happy to sit and, you know, come. I'll teach you how to do it. I've literally had kids that are in their early 20s break down and cry. It's like, finally, somebody gives me hope other than either business as usual, because I know we're going to kill ourselves, or, you know, Just go be proactive and die, you know, before the system takes you out. And and to just know that there is something that um, we can do and we know how to do it. And that really the whole problem comes down into the story and the narratives people are telling themselves about the best way to go forward. And so really at that point, it's like, okay, how do we help people change their narrative, their story, the way that they think about the world? so that they embrace the possibility that we can have even a richer existence as human beings while regenerating, you know, the planet we're on and the ecosystems we live in.
0: I think that Sepp Holzer's Krammerhof, because Sepp Holzer lives at Holzerhof now, but mm-hmm. his son continues to live at the Krammerhof. But when we look at the video and the pictures of the Krameterhof, and it's in a, a climate similar to my own, um, so very cold. <laughs> Excuse me, very cold. Um, I think that that stands as an excellent example of romancing nature. Mm-hmm. It's a jungle. And the number of species overall is probably on the Krameterhof. It's, it's, and it's 110 acres. It's probably got a hundred. I'm just going to guess, and and then I'll give you a moment to Mm -hmm. see if you agree with my numbers. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it has a 100 times more species than the 1,000 acres surrounding it. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think – yeah, I mean – I'm an engineer, so I would like to have precise numbers, but I would say that you're, it's probably in that order of magnitude, yes.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say. Yeah. A hundred yeah. times more species mm-hmm. and the diversity that he has introduced there. So it's like not only is he creating a benefit for himself. Yes. But he is creating a benefit for all the things which Bill Mollison wishes for us to maintain a benefit for mm-hmm. in Zone 5. Yes. Those, that, flora and fauna that's out there in Zone 5, I believe is going to be more at home at Sepp's place than a 100 feet off of Sepp's place. Yes. Uh, yes. I Okay. And now, granted, I still believe that that Mollison is correct. We need that Zone 5 that is effectively, you know, but I, I kind of think that the way he's looking for it is different. We can have a community over here, and then there's like this, you know, 40 mile stretch where there are no communities and nature's doing its own thing.
1: So let yeah. me make a what to me is an important distinction which is I believe that part of the thing that's going on is that the forested lands around the Kramaterhof have been managed you know this is yes. a and and so what's happened is they have been managed in a way that has turned them into almost a, a tree monoculture you know yes um, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what kind of tree it was exactly. Um, I, know I it's believe a conifer. it was it's a conifer. So what you basically have done is you have had mismanagement by people over time that have created what you can almost think of as a conifer desert. And um, so if we were doing our part, which would be to be a keystone species in those forests, we would not have managed them into that direction. We would have created a you know, helped nature to create a successional mosaic across that space that was rich and had a lot of things going on and by doing so we would benefit ourselves because we would have a reservoir of biodiversity around us and we would benefit the natural systems. This is mutually symbiotic. You know, this is what
0: I'm I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. The next blurb is the prime directive of permaculture. Mm -hmm. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children, make it now. Okay, so so I want to I want to be clear. It's it's labeled. He has labeled it in here and titled this as the prime directive of permaculture. And of course, I can't help but read that and think of Star Trek. But uh, this is <laughs> yes. the, the prime directive of permaculture. The only the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children make it now so i kind of feel like maybe i could have called my book the prime directive of permaculture <laughs> um but the, the the i think that this is important the focus is what do you do for you and then mm-hmm. what do you do about your footprint what do you do about your environmental impact and then of course there's also your children um mm-hmm. and so i i feel that this is this is super duper critical right here and and this is in total co- so for example i i put out my book and i think everybody listening to the podcast has heard far too much about my book they're bored to death about it uh, I put it out, I've received emails and other messages through other things of like how my book is the most destructive thing in the, env- on the environment that exists today. <laughs> and the author of this stuff is basically saying that I am basically, I'm, I'm sending the, this is the Trump message, this is the Russian message. This is the conservative message, the corporate message, which is don't don't fight it. Don't don't fight the bad guys. Just just let them have their way. And I kind of feel like that is not my message at all. Mm-hmm. But but apparently there's a uh, there is a message that's a political message that's like everything that's wrong with the environment is the fault of the consumer. And I kind of feel like there's some truth in that. Mhm. It's it really is up to us and it really is yes. up to our decisions. Mm-hmm. And I and I wish to advocate for uh people cleaning up their own backyard. And and it's like and not only that, here's a cookbook of things you might have never thought of. Um <clears throat> which make a profound difference on your own personal footprint. Mm -hmm. So I believe that these people that are saying these awful things to me, that A, what they're saying is awful, and B, they kind of have a little bit of a point, but I actually think that my book will do more for the environment than all of their anger does for their um, philosophy set
1: yeah the way I process that is 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 this you know what you're looking for and advocating in is uh, I guess what i w- I said earlier in in our discussion, which is like shifting from pure consumption to some production, right and uh, reducing consumption sh- shifting towards production, and when you do that, you open the possibility for yourself to send signals um through the political means but also through monetary means to you know, as a consumer of the goods of our culture, you you shift yourself towards the possibility of sending different signals. Um, you know it opens up and makes it easier for you to do that. So to me, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Mm-hmm. You know it's what your book is really talking about is, hey, let's think about how we as individuals could reduce consumption and shift towards production. And to me, that's like the out, the, the opening gambit, right? It's, it's like if we can do that, then it opens up so many other possibilities. Uh, it opens up the possibility of, you know, reducing our own consumption and sending signals and, and so forth. So <clears throat> if you had somebody who said, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this whole <clears throat> shift to production thing. You should be all political side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I would say to them, um, excuse me. <clears throat> um, get a little water here. Um, I would say to them that, um, you know, to me, the shifting over to being less consumptive and more productive is a profoundly, you know, political um, statement in and of itself, and it allows for us to have the platform upon which the rest of the advocacy that they're wanting to see can happen. And can happen genuinely, not um, like almost um, you know, hypocritically, as in I'm not willing to make any changes. It's everybody else's problem. You know, we can stand from a point of saying, I am making these pro- I'm making these solutions. I am doing these things, and you know, I want to cooperate and stand with you, the rest of the people in my community, in doing that and making things better.
0: I, I like to think I want to use your analogy from earlier. I like to think that my book is, in its own way, a um, an invasive species seed. Mm-hmm. And so then um, there will be. And and I keep thinking when I think of the tracking thing, I keep thinking of this friend who is a wonderful person in Colorado, and I write about it in the book a little bit, just ever so briefly. Um, and and how he was protesting like twice a week against fracking, but he was heating with natural gas. And, and I kind of think like, well, what if he were to transition his own life? Like he were to do things in such a way that he no longer used natural gas, and uh, uh, he reduced his overall electric consumption simultaneously by, let's say, 95%, all while living mm-hmm. a far more luxuriant life. Yes, and then his friends and neighbors would observe him living this, you know, sipping lemonade from a hammock lifestyle, and um, they would then have this feeling of like, I want to live in luxury too. Why can't I have more luxury like he does? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and and then they two tell, they tell two friends, and they tell two friends. But anyway, whatever it it, it expands and. And then it goes, uh, it's, it spreads itself invasively. And next thing you know, um, nobody is using natural gas. Uh, and, and the electric consumption is reduced so dramatically that it turns out that we don't even need all the solar panels we've made. Right. And, and everybody's living a more luxuriant life. So mm-hmm. then there's the guy that's making the political war. Against the fracking. And, and it's like he's got an uphill battle and he's playing on a rigged playing field. Yes. And, it, and I agree with him that fight needs to be fought and I'm glad he's there fighting it. And in the meantime, I'm cobbling together this invasive weed that if it takes, that it'll be more effective than what he's doing it'll it'll finish the job that's right whereas his action is um slowing it down from growth Mm-hmm. mine in theory my my devious plot in theory will solve the problem very long term yes that's where i
1: said i think it's a both and not an either or yes i agree with you so that you you should you know i would go back to people who are saying you know this so forth it's like yes we need both of these um you know um it it's it's hard for me to sort of like wrap my head around people who think that you know you shouldn't be doing the practical part of it um that somehow that's a waste of time um i just i can't wrap my head around that that mindset so um, I, I think maybe we'll just kind of leave them leave them to their own devices for now. And hopefully, uh, if we can do some good stuff and, and have some good things to show, maybe at some point they'll
0: look at that and go, you know,
1: maybe that is a good
0: idea. Have you seen that little chart that Olaf made for me years ago where um, it's got a little picture of me there? He, he made a little drawing of me, but it's next to this chart. And at the bottom of the chart is a goldfish. And at the top of the chart is Einstein, and there's a line about a quarter of the way up, so pretty close to the goldfish, mm-hmm. and it says, you must be this smart to ride this ride. <laughs> and so I, when when I hear those guys, I just think, like, I mean, their, their job is to be angry, and mm-hmm. they want everybody to do what they're doing, and they – don't appreciate what I'm doing. They think it's it's pulling people away. And I, and frankly, I gotta say, I do think that if you spend a day doing what I advocate, you'll make more of a difference than if you spend a day doing what he advocates. I believe that. I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but but I believe that. And and I kind of do feel like um, that that he is wrong, and and that his way is the only way. I think that both is important. I just want to, one more time, read the prime directive of permaculture. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Make it now. All right, I'm ready to move on to a new paragraph. You ready?
1: Yes, so I think we will have to wrap up in this recording session here in a few minutes just because I have things to be doing, but let's see if we can maybe get the rest of section 1.1, and then um, that will leave us to launch into 1.2, the ethics, next time.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the ethics. Uh, okay. Um, uh, all right. This is the last paragraph from section 1.1. A young woman once came to me after a lecture in which I wondered at the various concepts of afterlife, the plethora of heavens offered by various groups. Her view was, this is heaven right here. This is it. Give it all you've got. Okay. Um, we've talked about political. I would have to say that this is, the statement is religious However, I just enjoyed it so thoroughly, I wanted to share it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, we are going to talk about, this whole, this whole chapter is about philosophy and mm-hmm. religion and politics. Every, the rest of the book, well, there is a section of this book that's very practical and I want to, that's going to be my favorite part. But this, this piece to me really speaks to me. I, I think that there's a great deal, there's potentially a great deal of truth in this. How do you know it isn't mm-hmm. heaven? Exactly. Well, maybe it is what you make of it.
1: You know, I kinda look at it this way, and I have I have written on spiritual matters, you know, in completely different contexts, but I would look at it this way. Let's just let's just say regardless of what you think about uh, uh religion if you're an atheist or whether you know you, you have some theistic viewpoint or whatever, you're here, we're here. Um so the give it all you've got, just yeah. I mean I, I think you can embrace that regardless of what else you might believe, you know? It's um we're here and we have a life and um we have people that we you know we have relationships with and we have a beautiful planet that we have regardless of how you came you know, believe we, we came to have it. Um, and here we are. So you know, why not? Um, why not if you are going to you know, do the thing. Do it with all your strength. And um, for me, that resonates. And um, I think that would be something that I hope um, I can, you know, use as a way that to think about living my life. And you know, give it all I've got. I I can I can handle that. So.
0: I I think that um, what we have here is or can be heaven. And I think for a lot of people, they have manufactured a a hell for themselves. And um, and I think a lot of people like well, you know, you, you think about like well, well, what is suffering and hell supposed to be about? And they've kind of they're kind of there already. And I think a lot of it is is like how is it? How can you manufacture your own heaven? Or how can you bask in the glow of heaven? What what does that mean? What does it look like? And um, I, I, I think a great question is, if you work for 40 years and then you retire, what do you retire to? Mm. Or another question is, I hereby bequeath to you, I don't really, I, I better be careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pretend that a person, an average person has received a million dollars. hmm what do they do? What, what uh, do you know? Do they do they enter into early retirement, and what does that look like? And so, I kind of feel like with, uh, well, uh, we get into so many different interpretations of what is permaculture, but I kind of feel like permaculture and homesteading combined make a beautiful retirement package, mm-hmm. and it's what I advocate with the whole GERT thing. Um, but even still, people I, – I know that just yesterday uh, two people were here and they were talking about how to use permaculture to make money. And they were trying to, like, you know, come up with an income stream in a permaculture scenario to um, come up with a, uh, an income equivalent of somebody working a professional job. And I kind of jumped in there and said, why? Why? Why would you, what would you, if you had, if you, if you had $80,000 a year coming in, what would you do with it? You know, like let's say you got it, and it comes back to the question, you got a million dollars, what would you do with it? And I kind of feel like, may I suggest the GERT package? But that's, the GERT package comes more from what's in her head than the dollars all right i'm wandering way off topic here <laughs> yeah. well
1: i guess i'll just make one observation on that maybe we should wrap up for today it's it's, it's kind of um, this you know um, to me i would i would circle back around and say there's an implicit insum- assumption that the way to achieve the quality of life that you want is through this path that has been defined by certain types of culture that you do this professional thing and you get a certain income and then it will provide you with the quality of life you want. What I would say is my observation is in a lot of cases, that's not even true. It will give you the capability of consuming a certain amount. But in a lot of cases, I'll see people who have professional incomes whose quality of life is not what they want. So, We can't even just say that. What we could say is, what if we started at um, not even making that assumption and said, how do I achieve the quality of life that I want? And then look at it from, from there as a starting point. And what you've done is your analysis of GERT and, you know, that sort of thing. That's sort of starting from that point. How do I achieve the quality of life? And is the only way to achieve that quality of life actually through, you know, a very large income and and a particular way of life that's been sold to me pretty much as I grew up? And the answer is no, it's not. And as a matter of fact, um, it may not get you where you want to go, that, that path so to me it's like again when i'm teaching in the integrated regenerative design framework one of the whole things is around a statement of purpose uh, for what you're doing any project you're taking on and and what it part of the whole thing is defining this the quality of life you want because that's the starting point right what quality of life do i want as a human being and then what am i going to do to get it in an ethical way and i think that is where we start. And the answer, if we start from that point and ask honest questions, may very well not lead us to decide that we need to be consumers and that we need to, you know, have to ha- have, to have um, all the trappings of um, the destructive system, but that instead there are ways to, as you put it, be luxuriating in um, having that quality of life while having a much lower footprint. And I think that's, you know, that's where we need to be going. And I think as we start looking forward into this book, that that's what I think Mr. Mollison is going to be arguing for.
0: Um, I want to throw in a quick thing about about safety net. mm -hmm. Because I kind of feel like, for 90% of people out there thing that would be a great relief to them, or it would eliminate a lot of their stress or heartache or headache would be to have like a lifetime safety net and to, and to say um, like, okay, you've, you've got another 40 years left on this planet. You've now got it set up in such a way that you no longer ever have to worry about food and shelter and a bunch of stuff. It's all, it's all taken care of. So, I then put forth at your feet the idea of like, which would these people, which, which would these people ask for and which will actually make them have a better safety net. And that would be mm. the GERT package on one side or on the other side, a million dollars. I think that of the 90% that currently do not have a safety net, that 90% of those people would grab for the million dollars. Do you think, does that sound about right to you? my close?
1: I think they would reflexively grasp for that. Yeah. I think that's that's but the way I would put it is that reflexively, given the way they've been socialized, the way that they've grown up in the culture, that's that's reflexively where they would go. But I think there's a percentage of those that if they could if they got the opportunity to truly understand the difference between the two, that they might be a percentage that would choose differently.
0: And now and then this comes oh, this is delicious, this is perfect. So in order for them to change their mind for them to choose, because I think the million dollar package for most people is going to lead to them needing to like their safety net will be gone in two years. Mm -hmm. I think that's almost been proven. Um, Whereas the Gert package will last the rest of your life. I mean, we could talk about when you get into crepitude that things change, but that's another story for another day. Yes. Um, But the key is, is like, okay, we've got our average person and they're reaching for the million dollars. And so what does it take for them to reach for the GERT package instead? And I believe that I need to share with them several hundred little bits of information and I need to take each bit and candy-coat it, and feed it to them in a way that they want it, in a way that they want that information, and they seek that information. And then by the time they've digested several hundred, then they start to draw their own conclusions, and then they want the GERT package instead of a million dollars. And that's kind of like a big part of what I've been attempting to do, or what I was attempting to do before I got this property and I kind of get the impression a lot of other people have picked up the ball from there, but I'm not sure if we're reaching general America or general population of the world, but you know, we are reaching a few.
1: Yeah, we need to, you're reaching for the early adopters and for those people who are open. Once their example starts to be more visible, then the possibility for wider change opens up, I think.
0: I agree. I agree. On that note, I th- I think we might be done for today? Yes. All right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about Bill Mollison, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time.
1: Don't forget... Go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make
0: a pledge for future artifacts.